You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Notes on Election Day security from CISA. The Maze Gang finally releases its press release announcing that it's going out of business. Mr. Snowden applies for dual Russian-American citizenship. Ben Yellen shares his thoughts on Mark Zuckerberg's recent Senate testimony. Our guest is Carlo Zanki from Reversing Labs on Hidden Cobra. And a botmaster gets eight years after copying a U.S. federal guilty plea to conspiracy. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020. Today, of course, is election day in the U.S. Have you voted? We have. And of course, it's inevitable that the big story be cybersecurity and the election. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is holding a series of media briefings throughout the day to pass on information about election security. A senior CISA official characterized the briefings as part of the agency's attempt to be as transparent as possible. The good news is that there really don't seem to be any major cybersecurity risks actively surfacing during today's voting. Iran and Russia have done a little bit of American cage-rattling, but nothing too serious or even particularly convincing. During the first call at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, CISA made a few general points. The U.S. has learned a lot about election security since 2016, and CISA believes it's put what it's learned to good use at the federal, state, and local levels. The threat landscape has been cumbered by Iranian groups and, to a lesser extent, Russian actors. But their activities have been neither especially intense nor notably effective— Iran has been the more active of the two, but Tehran's disinformation efforts, threatening emails and some online video, were recognized and attributed within 27 hours. Russian efforts have been similarly ineffective and have so far been notably less intense than what was seen to emerge from Iran. There's no evidence that any threat actor has succeeded in altering voter information. CISA officials made this point several times. Much voter information is readily and freely accessible without the need for any nefarious data theft. CISA was concerned to explain that this didn't mean voter or voting data had been changed or corrupted. A senior CISA official said, quote, Elections are messy, technology fails, and we're already seeing some resilience in the process, end quote. CISA expects technical problems in some of the thousands of polling places across the U.S., but these are expected to be part of the usual noise and not the result of cyber attacks. 
The most probable cyber attacks, should any develop, are from the familiar Iranian playbook, website defacement, distributed denial of service, and wiper attacks. At the time of the briefing, CISA hadn't seen any pop-up so far today. CISA strongly recommends using its rumor control site, which you'll find at cisa.gov slash rumor control. It's being updated as necessary. A senior CISA official said, We're treating today as if it's halftime. Since foreign cyber activity is largely taking the form of disinformation, and since the goal of such disinformation appears to be the erosion of confidence in the elections, CISA expects to remain on high alert until all votes are counted and certified in January. Turning to crime, well, to crime reporting, that is. We're not shoplifting or throwing rocks at cars or anything like that, but we trust you knew that. Turning to crime news, you'll recall that last week Bleeping Computer reported that the Mays ransomware gang was ceasing operation. At the time, Mays refused to confirm that it was going out of business, telling Bleeping Computer that it should wait for the press release. Well, the release is out. Mays is going out of business, and HackRead has their press release. They're out of business, they say, and you should regard any future communiques, blog posts, emails, and so on that purport to be from Mays as a scam. And besides, they say, they never really were in business after all. It's just clueless media hype and a bunch of hogwash put about by government tools. They were good guys, practically Robin Hoods. Yeah, that's the ticket. Just out to expose businesses' careless OPSEC practices. Their press release is composed in such fluent shadow speak that it would be a shame not to quote a little bit of it. Quote, Our world is sinking in the recklessness and indifference, the laziness and the stupidity. A contention we note that's basically been true since that talking snake offered what's-her-name some discount fruit. Anyway, the Mazers go on. If you are taking the responsibility for other people's money and personal data, then try to keep it secure. And, as they say, the maze cartel was never exist and is not existing now. It can be found only inside the heads of journalists who wrote about it. So there. Actually, while it may well be the case that the maze gang, unusually nasty innovators in the field of ransomware, may be going, going, and possibly gone, it's unlikely that the individual goons who worked in the crew will be downing tools, Look for them to hang out a new shingle, either together or as independents. Edward Snowden tweets that he's applied for Russian citizenship. He explains that he's doing so for family reasons. He and his wife, Lindsay Mills, are expecting their first child, and they don't wish to risk the possibility of separation. Mr. Snowden says he will hold dual Russia-U.S. citizenship, he hopes to raise his child as an American and to return one day to the United States. And finally, a word from the courthouse. Alexander Bravko, identified as both a Russian national and as formerly of the Czech Republic, has been sentenced to eight years in prison for his role in trafficking and monetizing botnets. Mr. Bravko, in February, pled guilty to conspiracy to commit bank and wire fraud. The U.S. Department of Justice says that, in the aggregate, Bravko's botnets are thought to have cost victims more than $100 million. We wish him a tranquil sabbatical at Club Fed. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. 
Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Carlo Zanchi is a reverse engineer from Reversing Labs, and he and his team recently published the results of their look at Hidden Cobra. He joins us with their findings. Yeah, Hidden Cobra, also known as Lazarus Group, uh, has been active for around 10 years. Uh, so generally they are well known. Uh, it is believed they are sponsored by uh, North Korean government. They are known for several campaigns, probably the most best known by uh, Sony Pictures hacking campaign, and they were involved in WannaCry incidents, also several uh, bank bank stealing uh, information, cryptocurrency stealing uh, campaigns and different stuff. They tried to gain uh, financial benefits, political uh, revenge or different stuff. They are known uh, to often recompile their tools to highly customize malware used on uh, different targets. And they also reuse the tools, but uh, with different uh, infrastructure and uh, such uh, stuff. It is often not easy to detect uh, new variants because they change their samples uh, to avoid the antivirus detection. And uh, when we talk, let's say, about some uh, non-state-sponsored actors, they uh, release big campaigns targeting a large number of people and hoping uh, that big numbers will go into their favor. Let's say you send an email campaign to millions of people using same samples, 
and hope that 10% of that million uh, targets would get infected by your malware. And non-state-sponsored actors are often happy with that results. State-sponsored actors like Hidden Cobra uh, often don't go for such uh, high-number campaigns, but uh, focus uh, their tools on smaller, more valuable targets and do more adapting of the solution for that target. And uh, it's not easy to protect uh, from such attacks when you have a small clues that could help you detect those threats like IP addresses, domains, and such stuff. At this moment, they are quite active in cyberspace. Uh, Over the last 10 years, they conducted several campaigns, did quite a lot of damage uh, during that those campaigns, and uh, we believed that they could be interesting to general research community and uh, potential targets in the industry and uh, government institutions. And uh, we believed our threat uh, research could uh, give additional uh, bonus knowledge, which would help protect from from these malicious threat actors. That's Carlo Zanke from Reversing Labs. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security, also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Uh, you and I recently, uh, over on Caveat, we were talking about how um, the, uh, the the big the big folks from the big social media companies, uh, your your Zuckerbergs, uh, your Jack Dorseys, uh, were put in front of Congress to testify, and uh, Mark Zuckerberg's testimony gathered uh, some attention here. Uh, I'll quote him uh, talking about Section 230. He said, Section 230 made it possible for every major internet service to be built and ensured important values like free expression and openness were part of how platforms operate. Changing it is a significant decision. However, I believe Congress should update the law to make sure it's working as intended. Um, This gathered a lot of uh, commentary uh, from both directions, but I think there are plenty of people out there who are cynically saying that... uh, Mr. Zuckerberg is arguing in his own interest um, that uh, changing Section 230 would have some business advantages for him. What are your thoughts here, Ben? Sure. So just to refresh, Section 230 generally provides immunity from the Twitters, the Facebooks, the Googles of the world, from liability. So any, any service that is an interactive computer service who publishes information from third-party users is shielded from legal liability. And that's, that shield from legal liability has uh, allowed these companies to flourish. They can't be held liable for their content moderation decisions. Uh, so, you know, it's allowed Facebook and Twitter to experiment with um, their own content moderation to allow free expression to flourish, but also give them latitude to make decisions as to uh, how to restrict their own platforms. We've seen this cause a good deal of political controversy from both the political left and the political right, but largely for different reasons. So on the political right, uh, you see a lot of complaints that social media companies are biased against conservative viewpoints. And from their perspective, Facebook and Twitter uh, and other companies 
censor conservative articles, conservative uh, commentary at a far more robust pace than they do commentary from the left. What the social media companies would say is we try and make politically neutral judgments on content moderation. Uh, whatever article you see has been removed or you know we've limited shares on, it's because it's violated our terms of service. Either it's you know misinformation, abusive, uh, etc. Mm. The political left thinks that Section 230 gives too much latitude to these companies. They think that the, these companies aren't doing enough to protect against uh, misinformation, particularly as it's related to election interference uh, and for uh, abuse, etc. So you have this bipartisan coalition of skeptics against Section 230, and I think that's really under uh, important to understand. Uh, that context is really important to understand when evaluating Zuckerberg's opening statement. I think saying that he's amenable to getting rid of Section 230 is a way to ingratiate himself to uh, members of both political parties. <laughs> I know you all, all of you don't like me equally. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> right. So what if I said this one thing where you hate me slightly less after I give this opening statement? <laughs> uh, and yeah, I mean, he knows he's been much maligned by, you know, the most conservative uh, United States senators and the most liberal United States senators. So mm-hmm. I I think this is a strategic move on his part. The other element of this, which you mentioned, is he has Facebook's bottom line in mind when coming up with this opening statement. Facebook, as he says in his statement, greatly benefited from the protections of Section 230. It allowed them to flourish. It allowed them to make their own content moderation decisions. So now that Facebook has nearly 100% of the market share for their type of service, for him to remove that liability shield from himself, but also from other potential competitors, is to me really an anti-competitive practice that's seeking to protect Facebook's place in the market. And I think that would be the cynical look at uh, what Zuckerberg's motivations are here. Yeah, I was looking at uh, one take on it over on the TechDirt uh, website. Uh, Mike Masnick wrote, uh, he said, make no mistake about it, this is Mark Zuckerberg pulling up the innovation ladder he climbed behind him. Absolutely. It reminds me of that old uh, Simpsons gif where Homer Simpson drives over the bridge and then uh, once he's over the bridge, he sets it on fire so nobody else can cross it. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is an instance of protecting your incumbent advantage as, you know, the Goliath of social media giants. Um, And I also think it's really interesting that Zuckerberg is saying this, but so far we haven't seen the other people who are testifying at this committee hearing, like Jack Dorsey, come out in uh, support of some sort of Section 230 regulation. So far, it's been unique to Zuckerberg. Uh, I'll also say, you know, one thing I'm also skeptical of is he offers a critique of Section 230, and he says, I think to ingratiate himself to politicians, that he's amenable to changes, but he doesn't really suggest what those changes would be. Uh, If you are too strict, if you remove that liability and allow uh, the Facebooks of the world to get sued on uh, on the basis of their content moderation decisions, then these companies are going to be extremely conservative about what they allow on their platforms. And it's going to start to look more like broadcast news where – you know, NBC, CBS, and ABC aren't going to put controversial content on their network because they know that they could be fined by the FCC. Uh, mm. But then, if you you know go too far in the other direction and you're too you're, you know you're too lax in terms of content moderation, you could be allowing for the massive spread of disinformation, of abuse. Uh, so 
you know, if you're going to offer a, a critique of Section 230, which he does here, I think it's incumbent upon him to offer some sort of policy solution. That's just not something that I've seen. Yeah, yeah, it says smacks of uh, a please don't throw me in the briar patch. Yeah, exactly. And I can understand it. I mean, it's intimidating, uh, even if it's via Zoom, to be grilled by, you know, a, a congressional committee. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think we have to look at this uh, a, a little bit cynically and realize the unique motivations that Zuckerberg has in these circumstances. Yeah. All right. Well, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. That's a spicy meatball. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Carrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.